0: I have not thought of for maybe 15 or 20 years or 25 years. They're just coming back as I tell this and I think about, oh yeah, what about this one? What about that? What about this experience? What about that person? So this, the week is building from the first day because more and more of these episodes and experiences and people that I... Uh, I had to deal with and see. Uh, Keep coming back. to My, I thought of one. uh, My wife reminded me of another one last night. I hadn't even thought about it. In fact, I hadn't even thought about that part of the world. I'm referring to the Balkans. You remember the Balkan War, any of you? All of you old enough to remember that? Kosovo, Albania, the Serbs. That total area, and Adra was very heavily involved uh, in those areas. I didn't even I hadn't even thought about that. In fact, Adra's back again because they've had severe flooding in the Balkans about two months ago, and I just got a little note from Adra Canada saying that they have been involved in doing relief work there uh, for the people living in that area. So, uh, but I hadn't even Balkans didn't even penetrate and uh, my wife mentioned last night this experience that uh, that we had in the city of Sarajevo does that city ring a bell to any of you well I am going to tell you about it a little later on this morning I'm going to give just a few more minutes for the saints to come in and I'll cut my time short today it's not too bad we're only a few minutes behind Sadly to say, some of the material that, you, that I give at the beginning of my talk, uh, in some ways, it's even more important than what I have at the end. So I, I've been trying to shift some of these things around. Mrs. Watts, good morning. Oh, you're going to sit back there. Oh, I did something yesterday that was not really nice. She's going to make sure that that doesn't happen again. You know what I'm referring to? But you know, uh, I'm just telling this little story. Last night as we were leaving, a lady came up and she says, Oh, Elder Watts, I thought it was so sweet when you went over and you just patted your wife's cheek. She says, that reminded me of my father. And a little embarrassing for Pat, but uh, I don't know. I just, it was an impulse that I followed, and maybe I probably shouldn't have. But uh, I thought it was a little sweet thing to do. Huh? Do it again. Depends on what your wife thinks. Yeah, it caught her off guard. All right, folks, I think uh, this would be a good time to begin. Shall we have a word of prayer? Dear Lord another beautiful morning here this part of the planet there are other parts of the world that today people are dying there's suffering, there's heartache there's despair there's Ebola we live in a world that is just tortured with pain and suffering but how fortunate we are to be here in this campground where it's peace, peaceful and quiet and restful. We are so fortunate. And our Father, we want to just thank you for that this morning. Thank you for life, thank you for health and strength that we have and for the privilege we have to coming together as a group of your children to fellowship, to study, to learn, so bless us this hour. I pray in the sweet name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, some of you are walking around with uh, with something that looks like this. I'm not going to plug it. I wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, but this is the, the book that I wrote about the escape from Vietnam. I'm not going to tell the story. Maybe you can invite me back for a future camp meeting and I'll share this with you. Would that be a a, a good thing? I'm doing two camp meetings in uh, next month uh, dealing with this. But the reason I wanted to mention this is because there's a passage of Scripture in here that for 45 years has sustained me as a church leader, as a church worker, as an administrator. It's a passage that's found in the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 32, verses 26 and 27. I don't need to look at it. Because this passage goes through my mind day in and day out when I'm faced with challenges where I don't know where to turn. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, I am the Lord of all mankind. Is there anything too hard me what a promise what a promise and my friends I want want to submit that passage to you today make that your passage to just think about day in and day out as you face the challenges of life whether it's financial or whether it's family or whether it's children whatever it may be Call upon the Lord, for he says, Behold, I am the God of all mankind. I'm the God of all mankind. I created this world. I created you. And there's nothing too hard for me. So today we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and a few other things. All right. And I have been debating now for the last three days since I gave that title. And I thought about that title and I thought, you know, that wasn't the best title to use, but it was catchy. Right? Get your attention. And I'm saying, all right, do I start off with the good and then end up with the ugly? Well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Do I start with the ugly and then go to the bad and end up with the good? Well, anyway, I'm going to mix this whole thing up, okay? <laughs> and and then I'll try to point out to you which one fits where, but I don't think it'll take long. You'll figure it out in a hurry. So let me start off with, uh, with the ugly. Some of the weirdest, scariest, and worst experiences that I had and that that Adra experienced. So I'm going to share one of you. Uh, right after Russia collapsed, the Soviet Union, and then it became Russia, uh, Gorbachev lost his leadership and it was turned over to another man. Can anyone tell me who it was? Yeltsin. Have you heard the name Yeltsin? And so we were involved. Adrov was involved in, in working in Russia. I don't know if you knew that. We didn't give a lot of publicity. But there were people living in the Ural areas of Russia, central Russia, that were deprived. They didn't have, they were suffering. They were, they were dying. They, had, they didn't have food. They didn't have medicine. It was a terrible situation. And so if you can believe it, Our ADRA country director, a Russian young man, made contacts with the government and asked if it would be all right for the United States government to provide some assistance in that area. Well, the government said, we need help. We can't do it. Fine. And so an agreement was made that we would start off an an operation in the Urals, in a a city called Tekkenberg. And it was right in the heart of the Ural Mountains. I went over, after we had set up the staff, we had the, office, the leadership in there, and I was there to welcome the first United States military cargo plane carrying relief supplies into the country of Russia. Now you talk about a strange experience, that was it. So I stood there in the runway, and I watched these C-140s and the, and the C-5As, these huge huge aircraft coming in loaded with food supply. We're talking about flour, wheat, corn, milk, powdered milk, oil. And so the planes came in. They landed. Trucks went up to take the delivery. I'm standing there talking to the officer, to the colonel who was flying the plane. I got a question for you. I said, what feeling swept over you when you crossed the border from Germany into Russia? Oh, man. He said, it was very strange and particularly when we had the MiGs accompanying us. (laughs) And so the Russian Air Force was right there protecting our American planes coming in, bringing American food supplies to the people of Russia. Now, you never heard about this story. But we did that. And we were there for quite a while. And I went out one day as they were making deliveries. We went up a Apartment complex, one little light in the hallway, several steps. And uh, knocked on the door and this very elderly lady came to the door. And so we brought some food for her. And the ad director that was with me, he said to her, he says, is there anything we can fix for you right now? Oh, she said, you have powdered milk? Milk? Yes. Oh, she says, I would just love to have a cup of milk. Can you fix it for me? Fine. Little burner, electric burner. Turn it on, boil it up, put some milk in there, stir it up in a cup, gave it. What did I do? Am I all right? I'm wired up. And so I had a little visit with her. And she said, uh, I haven't had anything like this. My son was in the military. I don't know where he is. I'm on a pension. She told me how much the pension was. It was about 3 or $4 a month. That's all she's getting. Her husband was killed in World War II. She's a widow. She has nothing. Nothing is being provided for her until we came along and provided these food commodities. I said, well, how are you getting along? She says, oh, Mr. Watts, the most difficult thing I have is getting medicines. I I have to have some medicine. I don't have any money for it. Well, shortly after this, I was invited to the Kremlin. And I was scheduled to meet with President Yeltsin. You remember the guy? Sort of an interesting fellow. He had one major problem. You know what it was? Vodka. Vodka. And uh, so he was constantly uh, in a state of uh, limbo. Uh, Not knowing exactly what was going on, but when he was sober, he was strong and firm and gave some leadership. But uh, in in order to seal his presidency, when he ran for election... He uh, brought on to be the vice president, um, a uh, former lieutenant general in the Air Force, a lieutenant general in the Air Force that was a popular war hero. Everybody in Russia knew this guy, and he was the one that led the bombing campaigns that wiped out a part of Russia. Do you remember what I'm talking about? That area where they have been fighting for years, he had bombed the daylights out of that area they had. It's called Chechnya. So I was, with our delegation, ushered into the Kremlin. By the way, it's a, any of you have been to Russia? It's a beautiful, beautiful place, the Kremlin. Beautiful. Guided in, down this hall, down this way. Walked into the office where <clears throat> we were to meet the president. Ornate office, huge desk. There are about four or five of us uh, representing ADRA. And we were to share with them what we were doing and what our desires were for the future. Anyway, the president couldn't make it because he was indisposed. (laughs) So the vice president walks in. Now, I don't know this man. I didn't know anything about him. But he walked in very brusque, came in, uh, very curt in the greetings with his, uh, his lieutenants, sits down at the head of the table, I'm right to his right side, and, uh, and, he stu- excuse me, and he starts in. And I'm looking at him, I like to watch body language. So I'm looking at this guy. Boy, is he a mean looking guy. And uh, he had salt and pepper hair, big scar that ran from the corner of his eye down his cheek. He had sideburns, gray pepper, still green uh, green eyes, uh, blue-green eyes, big mustache. And he started in. Said hello, and he started in. Didn't give us a chance to express what we had come for or to express our appreciation for the privilege of seeing him. It's one of the first things I say to a, a head of a state or an important VIP. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to meet with you. It's a privilege. we consider considered an honor. We're looking forward to having a visit with you. None of that with this guy. He started in, and he, from the moment he started talking until he finished About 30 minutes later, all he could do was criticize Yeltsin and the government. Now, how would you like to have a vice president like that? No sense of loyalty, no sense of commitment, no interest in what's going on with the people. All he could do is criticize Yeltsin and the policies of the government. And then that changes had to be made. And I thought to myself, President Yeltsin, whatever you do, keep looking over your shoulder Well, the conversation ended. I thanked him for his time. We didn't be able to say much. He barks out an order, and his assistant comes out with a nice big portrait of this man, of himself. And so he autographs it and gives it to me, and he says, it's nice to have you. Thank you for coming. And that was it. We got out in the car and headed back to my hotel, I turned to the address staff and I said, I'm going to tell you something and listen to me carefully. What's that? I said, this man is one of the angriest leaders, world leaders I have ever seen. There is not an ounce of compassion for the people of this country. All that he can think about is himself and his power and his future. And that eventually his desires will be to grasp the leadership of this country and take control of it. And if that happens, believe me, you will regret it. The people of the country regret it. What do we do? I said, if I were here in this country, you need to rally the membership and you need to pray earnestly to God that this man never becomes the leader of your country. Never have I seen a world leader talk and act and look like this man. It was scary. It was really scary. His name? Rustoy. You've never heard of him, have you? Because he faded out. Do you know, God puts into positions of leadership The people that the men that he feels should go into leadership, many of them are not good. Many of them are very evil, but it all eventually works out according to heaven's plan. Do you believe that? And uh, and that was that was an experience. So I put him in the class of the ugly. Would you agree with that? I put him in the class of the ugly. Let me let me mention a couple of others here. Um, I mentioned yesterday Mogadishu, where is that, what country, Somalia, have you heard of the Somalia pirates that keep taking these ships, Somalia, well about 20 years ago, maybe a little more than that. Somalia was facing a major crisis. The problem with Somalia was that there was no government, no government. So how did the country function? You had what they called warlords. Have you heard that one? The warlords. They'd have their tribes and their their, you know, their worker bees. Their their generals and their leadership and their military, and they would have conflicts with the ones just across the street or down the town, down on the other side of town or in the next neighborhood. And so these warlords were constantly clashing and there was no, no semblance of order. And it was just a power struggle to see who would, who would be able to get enough power to be able to take control of the country. And it just didn't work out for years. So there's No infrastructure. The government was just virtually non-existent. And these warlords were terrible leaders, terrible men. Many of them were very, very cruel. And so I was asked to come to Mogadishu, and I'm saying, you know, I didn't volunteer for this, but, you know, we need to have you here because... we are going to be involved in working with the United Nations and other organizations like CARE and World Vision and providing help to the people of Somalia who are, who are literally dying. Because the warlords would not allow any shipments to come in. And so one set of warlords can control the port. The other ones control the airport. And so you have this kind of a situation right in the city of Mogadishu. So I flew in to Mogadishu, the airport outside of town. When I drove through the streets of Mogadishu, I want to tell you, I've seen war areas. I have never seen a place that was so shot up that you wondered how anybody could live in that city. I didn't see one pane of glass that had not been shot. Not one pane of glass in the buildings. Whether it's an office or a hotel or whatever, Shut up. And pockmarks. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you who've been in the military. And then the mortars. And the buildings were all shut up. It It looked as bad as Hiroshima after the atomic bomb. It was terrible. And you wonder how in the world can people survive? And so here the United Nations is trying to bring about some semblance of order and support and help for the people who are dying so the warlords were cruel I went over now I'm going to tell you the story of because here's the contrast the warlords, evil a lady who was a saint so there's a lady that lives on the outskirts of town has a little compound has a little area that is her own it's her own security she's a humanitarian she has been involved in humanitarian work for many years in the community and so the warlords know her And they stay away because she's doing a good thing. And if they cause any problems for her, the people would rise up against them. So these guys are smart enough to know, leave Kudashi alone. Her name was Kudashi. And so our ad director was there. And she said, where are you going to stay? Well, I'll stay. No, you're not staying in a hotel. Her husband owned a hotel down. No, you're not staying in a hotel. Well, well, you're going to stay here at my place. I have a little apartment over here. And you make set up your office here. And so she, she arranged for the ADRA staff to stay in her home in another little, a little building that she had. They had an office there. They had a place where the staff could meet and where the ADRA director and his wife could live. And um, it was dangerous. And she, when I showed up, she said, well, "You stay here. I said, well, I don't want to inconvenience you. I said, don't. she says, Dr. Watts, it's not safe down there. I went by and saw the, uh, the hotel. It was a nice, nice looking hotel. Probably the nicest one in town. Nothing luxurious, but it was clean, neat. She said, no, you stay here. You stay here. As long as you're in this country, you stay here. We'll take care of you. We'll have a bed for you. We will feed you. And number, And she says, and even more importantly, Whatever appointments that you have, I will provide security for you. I said, do I need security? She says, yes. So I had to make an appointment to go down. I mentioned yesterday the name of Phil Johnson, who was the president of CARE, who was involved with us in Haiti. Well, he was heading up this operation uh, uh, on behalf of uh, the U.S. government. So I I had an appointment to go down and see him and talk about what we could do, what sectors we would be involved in, and so forth. So she says, when's your appointment? I said, 10 o'clock. She says, fine, I'll arrange for your security. So at 10 o'clock, I go out to get. There's a Land Cruiser. And on top of the Land Cruiser's are two guys with machine guns. (laughs) One pointed forward, the other one pointed back. And then there was a vehicle in front that had machine guns on it, with a couple of riders, and then there is a vehicle behind, also with equipment. She said, this is your security. Wherever you go, this is who you have to have with you. And then I got into the vehicle, and I thought, wow, this is going to be an experience. And I sat in, and another guy come in and sits right beside me, and on to the left, and then I'm pushed over, and another gentleman comes in, and they both have, guess what? And they're right. They're, they're, they're there to look out the doors at anything that might be moving. So I'm in a motorcade. I feel like President Obama. Uh, but anyway, anyway uh, we make our way down, have the appointment. And at nighttime, you could hear the fighting in the city. She lived out just on the edge of town. She was an angel sent by God. And you know, through the witness of our ADRA staff, over a period of time, she became an Adventist. She comes to the States occasionally, stops by the ADRA office. I've met her. Her husband's in the concrete business, and he has a big factory in the northern part of the town. And so you have the warlords killing and murdering people Causing all kinds of havoc. And then you have in the center of that storm, God provided an angel. She's an angel. And you know something? I will see her in heaven. Because she looked after us, she provided for us. She didn't have to do it, her life was in danger too. Wonderful woman. So that's a little story on Somalia, and I'm going to tell you tomorrow another story on Somalia as I end up my talk. Because that's the, I, talked, I mentioned that on Friday we're going to talk about the beggar and the sheikh. And it's the, the sheikh that you'll hear about tomorrow. All right, let's talk about some good people. I got a long list there uh, Nicaragua. Some of you have been to Nicaragua. Someone talked to me yesterday about being the Nicaragua Yeah, for the batch. Uh, I think most of us have forgotten what Nicaragua Nicaragua was like during the Ortega days. You ever heard of the name Ortega? Currently the president again. Uh, But Nicaragua was uh, a country that caused a little bit of heartburn for President Reagan. Uh, if you aren't acquainted with that story, come and see me afterwards, and I'll fill you in. By the way, incidentally, I had the privilege of working during the presidencies of Reagan, with Adra, with Reagan, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two. When I when I when I finished, so I had a chance to watch and observe these leaders, and that's an interesting story in itself. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail there, except I'll mention. I'll I'll, I'll mention one president here in in a few moments. But anyway, Ortega had lost the election and a lady, a grandmother, won the presidency of Nicaragua. Can you believe that? Her husband was the publisher of the newspaper. She was a grandmother, had kids and grandkids, and she was handicapped. She, uh, She walked with a limp. Well, Adri had been involved in Nicaragua for a while. And so the leaders said, please come on down and uh, see what we're doing. We were building a college. We'd done a lot of relief work. Uh, Denmark was providing the money to, to rebuild the college, and we had done some re- relief work where they had some disasters that just kept hitting year after year after year, and the people were just um, inundated and, and needed a lot of help. And so uh, I came down to, to visit, see what we are doing, our staff, And the director of address says, by the way, we have a special appointment with you, for you. What's that? You're going to meet the president of our country tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock. So we go over to the office, and we're there seated, waiting. The president walks in. And she, you know, hadn't seen me before, knew the others. She walks over. You know, it's sort of strange to be hugged and kissed by a president. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't quite used to that. But this grandmother in Latin American custom came up and she gave me a big hug and mm, here and one here. And I'm trying. Well, OK, all right. You know, and, uh, and she was so gracious. She said, oh, so I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came. And she says, my staff has been t- filling me in on what your, what your organization has been doing. I cannot thank you enough on behalf of the people of Nicaragua for what ADRA is doing in, the country, in our country. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Where do you think I put her? <laughs> right at the top. Well, sequel. About a year later, Uh, There's another situation that I need to attend to in Nicaragua. So I fly down to Nicaragua, you know, go through Miami and you make that trip over there. And uh, they said, uh, by the way, the president of the country knows that you're here and she wants to see you. Now, she had found out that I was going to be arriving. And they had just had a terrible disaster that had hit the eastern part of the country with, uh, with with flooding, terrible flooding. So there were thousands of people that were really without uh, clothing and blankets and food and medicines and what have you. Just a terrible calamity. She didn't know what to do. So I said, fine, I'll be happy to see her. So I walk into the office. Shortly she comes out. She has the biggest smile on her face. She knows me. She recognizes me. She went, oh, 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 Dr. Watts, I'm glad you're here. She comes up, you know, you know how they do. No, I'm not going to do it with you. (laughs) And, and, and uh, so, you know, a kiss on the cheek and a kiss on the other cheek. And, and uh, so she, I said, well, you have really gone through a tragedy. Yeah. So I made a decision. Sometimes, you know, you have to make instant decisions. And uh, I said, we're going to help you. You are? I said, we're going to help you. We're going to help you right away. Well, what are you going to do? I said, we're going we're to ship a thousand bales of clothing and blankets to you. And we're going to give you $5,000 worth of medicines to get started with and more to come. She stood up, walked over to where I was, reached down and gave me another hug and a kiss. Oh, she said, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. She says, you're the first ones to respond. We didn't know where to turn. She turned to her PR gal, or whoever she was. She says, they're making an appeal down in the town square of the capital, Malagua, down in the town square. People were gathering, and they're, the TV is there, the radios are there, radio stations, and the TV stations are there, and they're making an appeal countrywide for people to respond to the plight of those that were suffering in the eastern part of the country. She says, take Dr. Watts down there and let him talk to the people about what Adra is going to do. <laughs> so, so we did that. And I love that lady. She was a true grandmother to the people of her country. She loved her kids. These were her children. And you know you can sense that in a person, can't you? You can sense it when there's genuine concern and passion, compassion for others. She's right at the top of my list, Chamorro. What was her name? Chamorro tomorrow the name of the oh. president's tomorrow the country nicaragua oh okay it's like tomorrow but tomorrow, you meant tomorrow you tell me. <laughs> yeah well tomorrow i'll tell you tomorrow okay. <laughs> or no anyway we won't we won't go down that road you folks are really quick today <laughs> you're really quick my 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 humor my wife will tell you my humor sometimes will get me into a little difficulty Uh, But I inherited that from my grandfather, and I'll blame him for that. Uh, I'm going to digress a little bit. I'm a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. Both of my grandfathers were evangelists and pastors and teachers and administrators for the Adventist church, both of them. My grandfather on my mother's side became president of the Nebraska Conference at 28 years of age. And he was one of the founders of Union College. He was the president of the conference when the college was founded. He later went on to the general conference and was secretary of the general conference in Battle Creek from 1897 until 2001. Whereupon, after that general conference session, he came back to Union College as president of Union College, the sixth president of Union College. And from there... Upon the advice of Ellen White and the brethren, he and the family went to Australia to follow Ellen White, where he served for 10 years, building up the educational work in Australia. So my mother grew up in Australia. She was just there when she was just three years of age. My dad's father uh, was a farmer in Iowa, corn farm. Both of them came into the message through the book, Great Controversy. Both of my grandfathers, they read their way in. And then evangelistic meetings cemented it. And my grandfather on my dad's side uh, sold the farm, went on to Union College, studied for the ministry, had too many children, they could not send him to the mission field. So he says, if you can't send me to the mission field, then give me the next hardest place that you can find in the U.S. They sent him to Gentry, Arkansas. Now I don't tell this when I'm down there. But anyway, he started. He continued his work there as a pastor and then became president of that conference and then went to Texaco and was president of the Texaco conference. And my grandmother said, enough of this. She had five children. Enough of this. I want to get back to Iowa. She missed the green fields of Iowa. And if you've been to New Mexico and compare it with Iowa, you can understand how someone would miss that. So anyway, they went back there. And it was at Iowa where my parents... As teenagers first met, my mother's dad was the principal of Oak Park Academy coming back from Australia. And my dad's father was the conference evangelist. And the two kids started going to school and my mother thought he was a real big brat. But she, she later married him. Anyway, I was privileged to have that background. And my father served the church all of his life. Uh, as missionaries in Korea for, uh, for 17 years, conference president, he was union president there, conference president, president of the Southern Africa Division. Some of you old-timers remember there was a division that was called the Southern Africa Division. Any of you know that? Brother Haddad, you remember that. Southern Africa, so it covered from Cape Town through, up to Ethiopia. That was the territory. And uh, so my father and mother went there uh, as, pre- as he was president of the division. I was in Union College at the time. Pat and I uh, were just planning on, on getting married and were married during the time that they were there. And it was while they were there that they discovered that my brother, my younger brother, a year and nine days younger than myself. My birthday is April 15, if you want to know. Uh, yeah, it's income tax day. Yeah, and and my brother's birthday was April 24, a year later, so a year and nine days younger. So the first time we had been separated was when he went to Cape Town, and I was at college. Two months after they were there, they discovered that he had a brain tumor, and 10 months later, he was gone. So my mother had to live with that while my dad was traveling through the division, having to care for and nurse and provide for my brother until he passed away in March of 1953. And then my father came back and served in the General Conference. Some of you, the old-timers of you, may have heard him in a camp meeting. Elder Ralph S. Watts, uh, he was vice president of the General Conference, and he had that position until he retired, and he kept on preaching until he could preach no longer, and uh, that was how he spent his life. So he was totally devoted to the cause and told me, when I retired, don't stop working. And uh, so I, I try to keep that in mind. I'm going to talk to you about another, another man. And I need to move quickly through here. And I'll do this quickly. I had, had to make a trip to India. And uh, an appointment was made to visit the prime minister. And he was a relatively young man. And when we went in to meet with him... I was impressed by his bearing and his gentle spirit. His name was Gandhi. His mother was Indira Gandhi. She had been the prime minister, and you know what happened to her? She was assassinated. And so he now was the prime minister. He did not want to do this. This was what he did not want to do with his life. He was a pilot. He was a pilot for India Airlines. That's what he loved. That's what he wanted to do. He had a lovely wife, small kids. We walked in all dressed in white. an imposing, handsome-looking man. And as we talked and listened to him, here's a man that really has a gentle heart, a soft heart, a loving heart for his people, but... Just overwhelmed. Largest democracy in the world, India. We had a very fine visit with him, had prayer with him. And I put him at the top of my list because I was so impressed with his, his leadership. Another man I want to talk to is a man who's alive today who disobeyed an order but did the right thing. During the Rwanda crisis, I talked about it yesterday we had an address office in rwanda big operation in rwanda and uh, we ordered the staff as soon as as soon as the, uh, the, the the terrible experiences the country was going through we had them leave and and uh, and and find safety so that they uh, that they would not be caught up in the in this massacre i was in nairobi and our adder director's wife and children were in nairobi so we got on the phone and we talked to the adder director his name was carl i said carl you got family over here i said don't hang on too long i said the time may come when you need to move and get out while you can i hear you i hear you went back to the states he was still there but this situation was really in in dire it was a dire situation just terrible. And we were fearful for him. So I'm in the office with the president of the general conference and the president of Adra. And so you have two presidents now on the phone talking to this man saying, leave. We are ordering you to leave the country. We do not wish to have you stay in the country. You have a wife. You have family. You have a responsibility. And so, as leaders of the organization, President of Adger, President of General Conference, we're asking you, we're asking you to leave the country immediately and rejoin your family. Says, I can't do it. I cannot do it. So he was insubordinate. And he turned down a direct order. He stayed by. His life was Spared. And he helped save the lives of others. Now that was a high risk situation. And you can see why we ask him to leave. If we ask him to stay and something happened, what would, who would be blamed? We would. You, know, you leaders, what's wrong with you? you know, President of Adria, You, if you've got someone in harm's way, you get them out of there. Why would you ask someone like that to stay? I, we couldn't ask him to stay. I knew what he was going to do, but I could not ask Carl to stay. I had to officially, on the record, tell him we wanted him out of the country. So we did that. But he said, in all good, clear conscience, I cannot, morally, I cannot go off and leave my people. I cannot do it. It's a miracle he survived. He did. He ended up teaching Bible at Milo Academy for many years, pastored the church. Now he has started his own little ministry and he's going all over the country telling his story about Rwanda and the situation that he experienced there. I have not heard his story. I would like to. I might get a copy of the book. His father eventually ended up working for ADRA in Russia in this project that I just told you about earlier. So I would put Carl Wilkins. bad boy but good man. And uh, you, you have to live with that. The bad I want to simply list the killers and the murders of address staff. And I need to let you know that we lost. We've lost a number. Uh, Lauren, were you able to come up with the names on them? Okay. I'm going to tell you the story of a couple of them real quick like Rwanda and Burundi were both caught up in the situation. Our ad director in Burundi came back to Burundi. He was from uh, uh, one of the Scandinavian countries. I'm not sure which one. If, if the name is Nielsen, where would that be? North, Nor- Norway or Denmark? His name was Bent Nielsen. Yeah. Anyway, he was the country director. Been there for many years. They had a curfew on, and he had a curfew on with his staff. Nobody out after 8 o'clock in the evening until 6 o'clock in the morning. We don't, we don't meander around the cities. I think the capital is Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi. One night, the staff wanted to have a birthday party for him. Fine. So his wife invited the staff over to the house, and they celebrated. They had, they had the cake and the whole thing. And he looked at his clock, and it was uh, 8.30, somewhere in there, 8.30 or 9. And one of his staff, one of the ladies, needed to get back home. And, I, and she says, well, I need to leave and, uh, and catch uh, transportation. No, you can't leave this hour at night. It's not safe out there for you. I said, well, I've got to get back. He said, well, I'll drive you back. And his wife said, no, that's not, not probably the best thing to do. He says, I've got to get her back, so I'll drive her back quickly, and then I'll head right back. So he jumps in the car with her, takes her to her home and never shows up. They found his body the next morning lying by the side of the road and the vehicle gone. (coughs) The killers, the murderers, they wanted that vehicle. They stopped him on the way back. He probably argued with them or tried to talk them out of it. They weren't going to take any conversation. Boom. And we had to bury him. A good man. He made a poor decision. But he was a good man. He loved Adra. He loved the people of Burundi. They gave many years. That happened again. Down in Sierra Leone. Liberia, rather. Liberia. Country was in turmoil. Our Adra director from... A Norway, whom Pat and I had been with just a few months before. I spent the entire, a couple of days with him. And Pat spent a day with his wife, lovely wife, and, and a couple of kids. He was a good ADRA leader. He had good rapport with the government. We were getting significant funding from Norway. So he wanted to go down and see how the project was going along, how things were going. So he arrives down there. They secure a vehicle. They have address staff. And as they're driving along, a group of bandits, a group of uh, men, military men, dressed in military, stop the vehicle, take the men out, shoot them in the back of the head and take the vehicle. Evil men. Evil. But he was doing what he believed was God's work. We've had several of those. We had a dentist in Rwanda working for ADRA. One night there was a knock at the door. I think it was a Friday night. And he opened the door and there was a group of armed men. They were wanting all of his electronic equipment. His stereo. He had the music playing. Sabbath music. Told his wife and family, just stay, stay. Don't say anything. Just sit there. Let them have what they want. So he argued with them a little bit, they they forced their way in, they looked around the house and they began to take the equipment off the shelves that they wanted and and start to carry it out to the pickup that was out there in the driveway, a little sidewalk with a little gate, and they started loading it. He made a terrible mistake. He should have stayed in the house, he should have stayed seated with his wife until they left but he got up to follow them. And he walked out to the door, saw what they were doing. He walked out on the steps and one of the men turned around, pow, shot him a the forehead. Our dentist. You know, it's hard to explain things like that, isn't it? How, we ask, how could God allow something like that to happen? I don't have the answer to that. I know he was a good man. I know he was helping the people. I know he le- loved the people. And a few years later, I'm doing camp meeting in Mississippi at Bass Memorial Academy. So Sabbath morning, I'm telling stories like this. And then I have the 11 o'clock service. And in the afternoon, I tell uh, this story right here. So, boy, they're working me. Sabbath school, the 11 o'clock service, and then the afternoon. So I'm doing the whole thing the whole, all day. And uh, so I'm telling the story. Unbeknownst to us, sitting next to Pat, back in the audience, was the wife of the dentist. Now, is that a God thing? She was seated next to Pat. And I've told this story. At the 11 o'clock hour, I found out who she was. And 11 o'clock hour, after I ended my sermon, I told this story. And she was there sitting next to Pat. She sat, we had dinner together, lunch that they provided. And she told the story to Pat. I didn't have that much time to talk to her except to just pass along my condolences. Two boys, both of them at PUC. Uh, they, one of them went on and, and took medicine. We can't remember her name, can we? What was her first name, Pat? Rosemary? Rosemary. Okay, Rosemary. We can't quite put the last name to it, but anyway. Uh, beg your pardon? Yeah. She's at, you heard, have you heard of the self-supporting organization called Uchi Pines? Yeah. Did I pronounce that right? Uchi. 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 Uchi Pines is where she is today. And we don't know where the, where the boys are. Sarajevo. The Balkan War. I was telling you about it a little before some of you, before we started the service today. The Balkan War. That city of Sarajevo was shut out from the rest of the world because it's surrounded by mountains. So you had the Serbs fighting. And there was conflict, of course, with Albania. And the country, a little place, Kosovo, came out of that. And we were providing a lot of aid to the people of Sarajevo. We would bring truckloads of food and material and medicines in to that city. It would have had a difficult time surviving if it had not been for the work of Adria. But I'll tell you something that Adra did that I don't think anyone's ever, ever done before. We became the postal service for the city of Sarajevo. And I'm telling you. People would come from all over Europe, and they'd come to our warehouse at Darmstadt, Germany. And we had a big warehouse, and they would drop off packages and letters and packages and letters to loved ones living in Sarajevo. And so our staff there—they would take the Adra stamp, the Adra logo, and boom, they put that on an envelope. Boom, they put it on a package, and that's all it was needed. And governments, postal services from all over Europe, recognized the Adra. Logo, And they let these letters and packages come. And then we would take the semis. And during the darkness of night, they would make their way through enemy territory and wind down into Sarajevo. Now, some of our guys got stopped. And some of them were were harassed. But we didn't have anyone killed during that. But there is an evil man on a hill looking down on Sarajevo. That one day took out his rifle. He was a marksman. And he saw this young lady walking down the street and he pulled the trigger and he killed one of our volunteers, a 16 year old Seventh day Adventist girl who was delivering mail. Now the city was demolished, our church was hit. But Adra, you go to Sarajevo today, you ask anyone about Adra, a big smile will come on their face, and they say, thank you for Adra, because during the war, we had no way of getting help. That's what makes you feel good about people like that. She gave the Supreme Prize. Now, I've got a couple more than I, I need to, uh, I want to bring Lauren on. Lauren, I want you, to, you and I to talk a little bit about water. But I want to mention some other people in a hurry that I've met, okay, that I had just some interesting visits with. Uh, Tom Brokaw, does that ring a bell? Yeah. Oh, you still know Tom. He's been off the air for a while. Well, Tom was at a reception in New York City at the United Nations for the visiting foreign minister from Vietnam. Now, I, wanted to, I needed to be at that reception because I needed to meet that foreign minister. But while we were there in the little reception area, and they're going around with their drinks and what have you, and I have my seven up and, uh, and visiting, I see Tom Brokaw. So I walk over to Brokaw. He's sort of standing there by himself. I, I go over to Tom Brokaw, and I said, I said, Mr. Brokaw. Yeah. I said, I'm Ralph Watts. Put up my hand. I said, I am. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm the president, CEO of a humanitarian organization called ADRA. Oh, yeah, I've heard of you. I said, I got a question for you. He says, fire away. So we talked a bit, and then I said, I've got this question for you. He said, What is the question? I said, You know, every time there's a major disaster in the world, Adra is there. We're there. Our people are there. We're giving help. And I said, You get on TV. And you talk about what's happening in Country X and the terrible disasters there, and then you say, These, uh, you know, here are the organizations that, uh, it used to be, here are the organizations that you can contribute to. And they'll have them listed there alphabetically. Now they've stopped that. And I said, Tim, what's going on? I said, You know, we're there. He said, Yeah, we know you're there. But he says, It's political. It's political. I said, What do you mean? We're humanitarian organizations. He says, yes, but he says, ADRA, A-D-R, you're at the top of the list. So you, you get mentioned early. And he said, because we are beginning to get some pushback on this, our organizations and all of the television networks, we have made a decision. We're going to refer to you as aid agencies, all in one grouping. Aid agencies. So he says, ADRA will not be singled out unless it's a very unusual situation. So I told our staff, I said, anytime we're involved, and I hate to say this maybe publicly, but I'll, I'll say it to you anyway. I said, anytime public there's a disaster. Make sure you're wearing your ADRA shirts. Put up a big banner ADRA where the cameras can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, anyway, uh, but that was But you know, that's the when I do town hall meetings and I ask people to give questions, that's probably one of the most... Popular questions that's, ever, that's been asked me. Why is it that when there's a disaster, Adra isn't mentioned? Now you know the answer. It's Tom Brokaw. But he was kind enough to tell me, so I've got him on, the, uh, I got him on this, you know, so-so list. <laughs> uh, very unusual experience was my visit to North Korea. Uh, you know, I think I told many of you that I was born in Korea. I was born in Seoul, Korea. That one at one t- at that time, there was only one country altogether. It's called Chosen. That was the name of Korea. It was Chosen, and uh, the dividing line took place at the end of World War II. It was a terrible decision made in Yalta when Germany was divided up, Berlin was divided up, and Korea was divided up. And the Russians got control of the northern part of Korea. The DMZ line, as they called it then. And then you know the rest of the story. And then a few months later, war breaks out. Uh, June 25, 1950. Uh, the North invade the South. And this terrible, bloody conflict uh, has continued. And by the way, did you, are you aware of the fact that there has never been a ceasefire? They still meet in, at the DMZ every occasionally, talking about the situation there. So we have military, U.S. military, right on the line that borders North Korea. I've been up there. I was up there recently. I could see our soldiers there and the Korean soldiers. And just a few feet away are the North Korean soldiers. And so they're face-to-face. Well, anyway, I was invited through the United Nations representative to visit North Korea because Korea at that time was going through a terrible Terrible crisis. One disaster after another. Flooding, flooding, flooding. This particular year had destroyed their roads, many of the buildings, and their crops. So they were in terrible shape, and they knew it. <clears throat> and so, out of desperation, they sort of reached out and asked for some help. And we were invited. So the, our, our, our uh, church, our general conference representative that goes to the United Nations had been contacted by the North Korean representative. Would your organization be willing to come and give some assistance? So I was immediately contacted. And having been born in Korea, I thought, well, this will be an interesting experience. And so we pulled together a shipment. We got some of the most important medicines that they were needing, and we put it in a container. And United Airlines carried that for us, all the way to Beijing, at no expense. They provided that service. And then from Beijing, we flew into, uh, into Pyongyang, the capital. Well, the airport's out of the capital, but we went to Pyongyang, that's where we had to meet. And there were four or five of us in our delegation. Now when you go and meet with governments, at, at a higher level, you don't go by yourself. If I showed up in Russia by myself, or in, in North Korea by myself, they said, man, you know, this is not, this is not an important uh, meeting here. They wanted, they expected delegation. And so we had to have a delegation, I did. I brought a couple of guys from my office and the director for, for the entire Far East, and we, we, we are the delegation. So we began the process of meeting with them. And our contact was one of the men who worked in the foreign ministry, spoke very good English, and he was given the responsibility of, of negotiating with the Western countries, and he was assigned to us. So every day he'd come in his big black Mercedes, and we would sit there, and he had his group, and we would negotiate. We would talk about, it. because they said, we would like to have a long-term agreement with you, in addition to what you did with this medicine. So we agreed on a number of things. I said, "How would you like to have a medical team come here and work in your hospital?" Oh, we, that would mean so much. They took us to the hospital, met with the the medical staff, which you know. And I said, "We would be willing to send a team from Loma Linda, Doctor Reddett. We will send a team from Loma Linda and bring them up here." I didn't know whether they would do it or not, but I just made a commitment on behalf of Loma Linda. Went back and told them that, and and it was Joan Coggan and she had no problem. She said, "Man, i you know I'll get a team and we'll go." They did anyway. I was involved one-on-one with this man. About two or three days into the meetings, we're riding in a car because we would break for sessions where they want to show us the beautiful capital of North Korea. By the way, it's a beautiful city. From the exterior, it's gorgeous. But inside, it's crumbling. And we stayed in this magnificent hotel with a little 60-watt bulb in the room and the escalators didn't work. <laughs> anyway... Uh, so I'm writing with him, and uh, he says to me, He said, Dr. Watts, he said, uh, Where did you learn your Korean? I said, What are you talking about? He said, Did you marry a Korean woman? The last time I looked at Pat, she didn't look like she was Korean. I said, No. I said, I'm not married to a Korean. He says, Were you in the military? Were you stationed in the South and uh, worked with Korean forces? No, I was not in the military. Well, you speak Korean. I said, what makes you say so? He says, in our negotiations, he says, we're over here, we're talking back and forth. You have your little group, we're talking, you're talking back, and when we come back to meet, you seem to know what we're planning, <laughs> what we're talking about. Well, I do speak Korean. And I caught the gist of what was going on, so we had this conversation. And I said, uh, "I said, you want to know what my connection with Korea is?" Yeah. I said, "Have you looked at my passport?" Oh, I know. He says, the immigration takes care." I haven't seen your passport. I said, "Go take a look at my passport, because on every passport it says place of what, birth, birth. birth. place of birth." And I said, "If you looked on my passport and it says place of birth, it would say Seoul." Korea. I go. Chuketa. I go. Ah, That was his Korean. He was saying, Oh that's interesting, that's interesting. I thought you chamiso, chame your Chong chong yeah, yeah. So he says, Is that true? Is that true? I said, Yes, it's true. I said, uh Sunsang. Sashinan. Not kichone, not a Hey, look. I said, yeah, I was here before you were. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and I said, Sasha, Sashin, Hanguge <laughs> Urikara. Urikara. Oh, couldn't believe what I was said then. I said, in fact, if you want to know the truth of the matter, this is our country, yours and mine. I'm a son of the soil. I was made in Korea. <laughs> well, anyway, this conversation just blew him away. So he goes back and he tells his bosses right up the line. Now, the person that I didn't meet, that I didn't want to meet, and who I put on the top of my ugly, bad, dangerous list was his ultimate boss, the president of the country, who's one of the most despicable persons living on planet earth because all he can do is starve his people and build up the military and the nuclear everything goes into that and the people I'm telling you folks this is a fact there are thousands of people that are dying every year because of this ruthless dictator but the man that I was dealing with different man so we we continue the negotiations he passes the conversation up to the up to the big boys and they they say to me, why did you tell us? I said, because they told, us, uh, told me of the United Nations. I shouldn't even let them know that I had any experience with Korea. You know, we negotiated all week long. The Koreans are difficult to negotiate with. And we couldn't come to an agreement. Friday we were to leave. We were on our way to the airport. I'm in his limousine. We get out there. He says, he said, if you could just make an adjustment here, we, we'll sign this. I said, no. I said, this is a non-negotiable. There are certain things that are non-negotiable when we deal with governments. And, and, I, and this was a non-negotiable. Well, I said, I'm sorry. We can't do it. We get out. We're ready to board the plane. And he stops me for a minute. He says, okay. <laughs> he said, we will agree. Here's the, here's the agreement. MOU, would you sign it? So we're on the fender Of the Mercedes, and he pulls out his pen and he said, would you please sign here? And I signed it on behalf of the Adventist Church and ADRA, the Adventist Development Relief Agency, that we would be involved there. Do you know something, folks? That for 10 years, ADRA played an extremely important role in North Korea that we could tell nobody about. And we were kicked out of there in 2005 because they wanted all of the organizations all the ngos out of the country because he, they felt that they these organizations were sharing secret information to their home governments which is ludicrous but we built a bakery out of funds that came from europe a big bakery and i saw the ad director just last month in bangkok And I hadn't seen him for five years. And I said, man, tell me, tell me a little bit. Remind me again of what you're doing. He explained it all again. The bakery got to the point where we were baking 200,000 loaves a day for the children and the orphanages that surrounded within a 100-mile radius of Pyongyang. Is that the ministry of Jesus? Saving the lives of those kids. We did that. Until so they kicked us out. Now one final story. I've got to make this quick. This is humorous. We were in a crisis in the Sudan. And uh, we had gotten reports that the government was going to kick out. Now the Sudanese government, if you follow politics, you know what's happening in the Sudan. It is a mess. Beg your pardon? Yeah, it was a mess. And now they have finally divided. There are two countries now, North and the South. The South, basically Christians, the North, Muslim. But when I was there, all Muslim. But Adra had been involved in it. We've been involved in it since the 80s. And by the way, as a result of the work of Adra in the Sudan, where we had just a handful, 30 years ago, today we have thousands of Seventh-day Adventist believers in the Sudan. Isn't that marvelous? Witness, ministry. Of Adra. So we were told, the country director named Jerry Lewis, he said, he said We're going to, we, we hear from the, the underground that they're going to shut us down. Can you stop by and meet with the government officials and see if we can save it? And I said, Sure. I was in Europe on my way to another place, but I, I changed my flight arrangement, flew into, into Khartoum. I was met there by the staff. I had two days. That's all I could spare. And so they briefed me on what the situation was. And Andrews had a big operation, very well known. But we had two or three small little NGOs that were sort of working under our umbrella, under our supervision. And uh, we weren't too sure how, how well they were doing. But at any rate, as you, if you're going to meet the head of state, which, was I, which was I, my, I was intended to do, that was my plan, that's what they asked me to do, Appointment was made to meet the president of the country. But before you do that, you work your way through the lower levels. You meet with this official, and then you come to this official, and then you meet with this cabinet guy, and you meet with this cabinet, and pretty soon, you know, you've covered all your bases there. Now it's time to meet the big guy. So it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Time has come. The president left that morning for a big meeting of African leaders. So it was the vice president, I was going to say, he was a retired lieutenant general in the army. Tough guy, big man, spoke beautiful English. So here's our delegation seated on one side, big room, from here to the end of the tent. Beautifully decorated. Two chairs at the at the end here. And the protocol officer says now, Dr. Watts, you will sit here, and the vice president will sit here, your delegation will sit here, and his delegation will sit here. And when he comes in, you stand. So we waited. Pretty soon. He walked in, we stood up, he came over, big smile on his face, gave me a big handshake, about the same, about the same height. We were about the same height. So we sat down. We started chit-chatting, talking, visiting. And he had a good, I could tell quickly that he had a pretty good sense of humor. And so we began just talking about world leaders and world events and what the situation is, making a few little comments. And he would have a little dig and I would have a little comment. And we were having a good time visiting. I looked at my watch and I said, oh, Mr. Vice President, I said, our time is gone. And I said, We've taken your time. We need to leave. He said, Look. He said, if I want to talk to you, I'll talk to you. I said, But you got people waiting. He said, they can wait. He says, I'm enjoying my conversation with you. This is I haven't had a good conversation like this with someone in a long time. Let's keep it up. So we continue the conversation. Another 15 or 20 minutes go by, and I say, Oh man, this is terrible. We haven't even gotten to the agenda. And uh and I said, Mister President, I'm, we've taken really enough of your time. Well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're here. I'm here. We're going to talk. We're going to have a good time. So we visited. Finally, I said, You know, we, we really need to leave. Oh, he says, You can't leave. You cannot leave. He said, I haven't had a conversation like this in years. He says, uh, hey, He says, Doctor Watts, promise me something. I said, What's that? Come back next week and see me again. Would you do that? Oh, I said, I said, I would like to do that, but I said, I've got 120 countries that I have to, oh, that's selfish of me. That's not ill-considerate. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. Come by once a month. Just once a month, can you do that? I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'll make a deal with you. If you come once a month, I'll build a house for you. I will build a house for you. It'll be yours. Whenever you come, you have this house. It's yours. And he says, I'll have servants for you. I'll have cooked. I'll have have everything you need to be taken care of. Everything you need. In fact, Dr. Watts, he says, I'll even go one beyond that. He says, I'll provide you with another wife. (laughs) And boy, that caught me. And uh, I said... uh, Called him by name, I said, doctor or 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 general or vice president. I said, you know, I said that that is a generous offer. <laughs> but I said, I want to tell you something. I have one wife. And I said, She's fine. She's enough. And he paused for a moment and he looked over me and he took my arm. He says, Doctor Watts. There are times when I think one wife would be enough. For... <laughs> he had four wives and they were driving him crazy. But anyway, to finish up the conversation, he says, finally, time to go. She says, well, he said, you came here for a reason. You want to know what our decision is. And I thought, you know, he's killing us with kindness and now he's going to slay us. That's what went through my mind. He says, yeah, we've made a decision. We've made a decision. There are two or three organizations that work under your umbrella. You need to know we made a decision today that in 48 hours they will be out of the country. Boy, that was the first shoe. Now the next shoe. As for ADRA, we want you to stay. We want you to stay. I could have kissed the guy, but he was ugly. <laughs> and, uh, oh, man, I looked over at my staff, and I thought they were going to faint. Just, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We had a good program in the country. We worked hard for years. So afterwards, I said, Mr. Vice President, I need to know quickly why you made the decision. Two things. There are two things about ADRA that I want to tell you that are very important. Number one, you stay out of the political arena. I said, Mr. Vice President, we are here to help the people of the country. We are your partners. We may not agree with everything, but our role here is to help the people of this country with you. That's why we're here. He said, and that's why we want you to stay. You have a great record in this respect. And number two, the thing that we appreciate also very much about Adra, you keep your word. You do what you say you're going to do. Isn't that a good testimony? Father in heaven, we've spent these moments sharing and talking about ADRA and the people that we've met, worked with. There are many others that are on the list that we haven't gotten to. But we just want to thank you for the privilege. I want to thank you for the privilege that I have had of leading this organization. We've had difficult years, difficult days, and we've made a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. But Father, in spite of our human frailty and our weakness, you have blessed you have overruled, you have led. And today, around the world, people, communities, local governments, central governments, say to us, we want you to stay because you are helping the people of this country and you keep your word. We can depend on you. We want that to be the case, Father, because we believe that Adra will have a ministry to do until the very time of the return of Jesus. Amen. Because we are fulfilling the commission you gave in Matthew 25. Unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. Amen. God bless you. Tomorrow, the sheikh, the beggar, and the sheikh.